morning show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Carly Sharon. And I'm your co-host, Megan Bull. And today we are here with Maris Schneider. Thanks so much for being here, Maris. Thanks for having me. And to start us off, why don't you tell us a bit about the research you're doing and um, its wider context? Sure. Uh, so I, in short, study uh, animal mummies from ancient Egypt. So I feel like most people know that the Egyptians mummified humans, uh, but throughout all of the dynasties in Egypt, they actually mummified quite a bit of animals. So basically, my research, we are doing CT scans of these animal mummies to try and look in the wrappings to see what's actually inside the bundles, because you can't always tell from the outside. And then I use a computer program called Dragonfly, which is a really powerful tool to study CT scans. Um, so we can train computer algorithms to actually remove the skeletons from the mummified tissue and all the bandages virtually. So I can look at the skeletons just on their own. That's super interesting. So you're trying to get these kind of like digital images of what these mummies look like. And so what are you hoping to kind of learn by doing this? Uh, so for my thesis particularly, we're looking at the bird mummies and we're trying to identify the species of birds. Um, there were lots of birds in ancient Egypt, probably over 200 species that either lived there locally or migrated through. And so far in the literature, we found that about 77 of the species have been mummified. And we can tell through all the hieroglyphics that we have from Egypt that uh, certain birds were actually mummified for certain gods. So by being able to identify the species of bird within the bundle, we can actually tell which god it was probably an offering to. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So I want to I wanna take a step back. Okay. Um, because you mentioned ancient Egypt, and immediately I thought of the, I guess there's an Instagram reel, and it's really funny, and people are going around and saying, you know, the most significant thing that the ancient, ancient Egyptians believed you could do was die. <laughs> so first, why are we mummifying animals? And I guess, what is the process of mummification generally, not yeah. just for animals? <laughs> um, so I think the, the famous quote about the most significant thing you could do is die, uh, that's from a lot of pop culture and the fact that in the early 1800s and 1900s, you know, archaeologists were in Egypt and they're like, wow, look at all these things. Egyptians must have been obsessed with death. But in reality, Egyptians were actually obsessed with life and achieving eternal life. And the only way to achieve eternal life was through mummification because you needed your corporeal body, so like your living body, to be in the most human form possible in order for your soul to actually enter the eternal life. Um, there's lots of other ways to the <laughs> eternal life, like there's lots of steps, but that's like the main purpose of why they mummified bodies. So for animals, there's actually like four different types of mummified animals that we find. So there are pets, so Egyptians would have mummified their pets. Uh, same reason, you know, they want their pets to be with them in the afterlife. And then we have what are called victual mummies. So these are actually mummified meat products, mm. um, but like they're like whole birds, like a whole chicken that okay. would be mummified. And then they would be placed in the tombs with pharaohs, and that would be their meals for the afterlife. So King Tut, for example, obviously very famous <laughs> yes. because we recovered a lot of his uh, tomb trophies. Mm -hmm. um, he had about 40 victual mummies in his wow. tomb. So, uh -oh. you know, racks of lamb, legs of certain like cows, sheeps and then whole chickens, goose, stuff like that. And then we have sacred animal mummies. So they are actually believed to be a physical incarnation of the gods. So they were actually treated very similarly to the pharaohs. So there would only be one representing a certain pharaoh or god. And when they passed naturally, uh, they would be mummified in the same way that the pharaohs would. They would get the same funeral procession and they would be buried in the big tombs with the pharaohs. And then we have votive mummies, which is what I'm studying particularly. 
So votive mummies was like an industry in Egypt. You know, they were like mass-produced mummies. And um, these were mummies that actually like pilgrims or locals could just purchase, and then it would be their offering to the gods. Uh So similar to like Christianity, when you go to church and light a candle, that's your prayer to the gods. Uh, Locals in Egypt would purchase a mummy. They would slip a small piece of parchment in it with a written prayer or offering or question or whatever your ask would be. And then those mummies would be stored at the embalming chambers. And then once a year, they would have this huge funeral procession. And all of those victual, or sorry, votive mummies would be taken to the catacombs and buried underneath the ground. That's really interesting. Yeah. And you also answered my question about whether we were mummifying the animals after their owner had uh, yeah. died and they had naturally passed. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So the pets were natural deaths, but the votive mummies were slaughtered. Ah. Yeah. So... It's less. It's a bit depressing it's to read about sometimes <laughs> when you're like six articles in, and you know you're reading articles about dead dogs all the time and dead cats. It's, uh, but yeah, that was part of their culture. So I try to remain pers- perspective of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so these votive mummies, is there like a a main animal that they use, or is there a lot of different animals? Uh, so it's a lot of animals. So dogs were one. Dogs were very important in Egypt. You know, they represented a couple gods, Anubis in particularly, because he was the god of mummification and of travel to the afterlife. Uh, who else do we have? Cats, obviously, for Beset. She was the goddess of, you know, kind of beauty, fertility, so a lot of that. Um, a lot of birds. We have, like, Ibises, who are representative of the god Toth, who is, you know, wisdom, writing, knowledge, um, lots of falcons and birds of prey. Um, so they represent quite a few gods. We have like Horus, who is like the god of the pharaohs, uh, Osiris, Isis, she's a female goddess. Um, she, you know, she represents fertility specifically for women, but also for like the Nile and, you know, the rains every year. And we also even have like mummified bird eggs and stuff. Oh. So like you, there's like catacombs that have been opened that have shells in them. Hmm. Um, they also mummified baboons, um, so also an offering wow. to the god Toth. They also think that sometimes they kept them as pets because some of their teeth were missing, so they were removed so that they wouldn't attack their owners. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, there's like a, <laughs> they did a lot of animals. So basically anything, you even have like um, mummified shrews, little mice. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. They can't decide if that's for anything important <laughs> or if it's just because they kind of captured it and yeah. had it. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically any animal they could get their hands on were mummified. Cool. So for these votive, I'm saying that right? Yeah. Votive mummies, um, you mentioned that they were, they could be used as an, you could use them as an offering. Mm -hmm. So um, my question is, you know, why would I want to do an offering? Why would I want to buy one of these to make an offering in ancient Egypt were I an ancient Egyptian? Yeah. Uh, So it's, you know, it's the same thing as offering a prayer in any religion today, you know, just because Egyptian religions um, they had the animals and all the deities. It's It would be the same as offering just a prayer to any god that we worship today. Okay. Um, so you just needed that physical body part, which is the animal, <laughs> to produce an offering to the gods, ask for a prayer, ask for help, ask for guidance, anything like that. So I could just, I could take it on that procession and be like, you know, my, my family member is sick, mm-hmm. make him well again or yeah, something like, like that. knowledge to heal, anything like that. Okay. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, neat. Um, I guess this is more kind of a question going back to like the mummification process, but you said <laughs> that um, they really care about having their body like in its human form for the afterlife. 
But do they not, like, remove all the organs and everything? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So that is for human mummies for the most part. Um, And the only reason that we can tell that they actually did that is because your organs rot before your muscle tissue does. Um, So they would remove the organs so that they could actually preserve them still, and they would put them in the jars to be buried with the physical body. Um, But you had to do that so that the mummy wouldn't rot before the preservation was completed. Okay, so is it, like... I guess I'm just saying, like, if you want your body to be in those human form, you need your organs. Yeah. So is that why they have yeah. them, in, like, in the jars? In the jars so in their mind, them. like, that's, that's still, still those are it. going. You're okay. all together. That's really neat. Okay. Um, but for the animals, they didn't really remove the organs. Oh, okay. Especially when they started really mass producing them, like birds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Organs are just too small. They could mummify yes. quickly enough. Um, those sacred animal mummies, like the big bulls and stuff, they probably did but bulls are really hard to get into a scanner to look inside <laughs> so we can't really tell oh. yet uh, but the birds like one of my, my birds that I've scanned still has his brain and his heart and his lungs wow. we can see that on the scan so um, at some point they stopped when they had to just kind of mm. push them out as quickly as they could mm-hmm. so I'm I'm also imagining like they're very delicate artifacts so that's the need for scanning yeah, so they're actually not as delicate as you think they would be. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, like they've definitely been underground for 2,000 years, and there's definitely some diagenesis. That's like what we call what happens to materials after they've been buried for a long time in archaeology. So some of them, you know, fall apart, band- pieces of bandages start to come off. But overall, because uh, Egyptians use resin to help with the mummification process to like hold the bandages, uh, they're pretty maneuverable. You can kind of mm-hmm. hold them without a lot of fear. The reason we do 3D scanning now is to help preserve the artifacts because Mm -hmm. for a long time in archaeology, we would just cut open mummies, human, animal, and just be like, well, what's inside here? (laughs) And, you know, pull out bones. And and, uh, yeah, so that was like a really, there's a lot of history with doing research on ancient Egyptian artifacts. Um, So we're trying to avoid that. So the least amount of damage we could do, the better. I have two questions. Do do they smell? And do you have to wear like any kind of protective like equip like PPE or anything when you're doing this work? Like I'm just imagining like old like 2000 year old like bandages and stuff like I don't breathing that stuff in doesn't sound great. Uh, so you don't they don't really smell um, the ones that do smell. Uh, it's just the resin that's actually you're smelling. Okay. It's not any like desiccated mm-hmm. tissue or anything. Mm-hmm. We wear PPE to protect the mummies, not ourselves. Okay. So, you know, oils on your fingers, yep. stuff like that. Um, it's really bad for any artifacts, really. Mm-hmm. Breathing on artifacts, especially ones that were preserved in a really dry environment, you know, you don't want moisture in them. Mm-hmm. And it introduces mm-hmm. a whole sort of, like, bacteria, mold, anything that is just awful to deal with. Uh, so I do wear a face mask and gloves when I'm directly handling them. But you really don't have to for your own health and safety. Okay. Yeah. Is that both questions? I feel like yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thought you covered them. Okay. So, um, I'm probably gonna be taking a step back here, but you you had mentioned uh, this rich history involved with Egyptian artifacts, and I have a feeling I know where this is going. But I want to ask you to maybe talk about that a bit because I'm I'm a little curious too. Yeah, for sure. So in the 1800s and like early 1900s, when they kind of first rediscovered ancient Egypt, and you know a lot of European archaeologists collectors not even professionals in the field were just (laughs) taking buying you know it's it's like a crazy history Um, but there are what used to be called mummy unwrapping exhibitions in England you know they would lay a mummy out on a table they would invite 20 to 30 men and they would unwrap the mummy and pass around all these artifacts Um, and 
actually when they first discovered animal mummies, people doing research in the field, collectors, traders, didn't even think that they were of value to do research on or collect. So a lot of them were destroyed. So they actually used them for fuel on ships. They used them for compost in fields oh back in oh. England and Germany. Uh, yeah, there's like this whole story about how they sent a whole group of baboon mummies back to Germany and made it fertilizer for beet fields. <laughs> so at the very beginning, they thought that there was no importance mm-hmm. in actually researching these. So they just destroyed like masses of them. It was kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah. So we try not to do that anymore <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be throwing yeah. any to make uh, fuel or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> throw this mummified cat on yeah. my garden. <laughs> Um, I guess maybe kind of now dive into a bit more of your research. Like, what does your day-to-day yeah. kind of look like? Oh, boy. Uh, so <laughs> over the summer, I was actually in Montreal collecting the CT scans. We were working with the Red Path Museum okay. because they have a few mummies there. Um, and a day of scanning is long and tedious and quite boring, actually. <laughs> so um, the Red Path Museum was worried that obviously about the preservation of the mummies. So generally when you're taking a CT scan, you want the mummy to be standing upright um, because the x-rays have to penetrate around the mummy and then you get this perfect 3D object. Um, They wouldn't let us stand them upright, so we had to do it on an angle. So the first kind of bit, we had to design a specialized scan or a stand to put the mummies on. Mm -hmm. So we started with that. And then every morning before you take the CT scans, it takes about two hours to set everything up and make sure it's all perfect and that the scan is right. And you have to adjust like the energy of the x-ray beam to make sure that it's actually penetrating through the mummy and you're getting a clear picture. Um, And then we did multiple resolution scans. So we started as far away from possible as possible. So the lowest resolution. And then we would zoom in on specific features that um, were used for identification or just look really good in high resolution. So for birds, we look at their eye bone and their head like those are the most important Mm -hmm. features we can look at for the cats you know we zoomed in on their head yeah the head's usually pretty important (laughs) in most animals the skull is very important Mm -hmm. Uh, we even did one directly just of the cat's nose to compare to like modern day noses and cats to see if any evolution has occurred Um, and we had a couple baby crocodiles so we can get really high resolution on those ones because they're really small so Mm -hmm. we really zoom in on their head Um, but For example, the cat, we took about six scans of it. It took 10 hours of scanning. Um, And the scan itself takes about an hour and a half. So most of the time you're just sitting there with the mummy in the chamber, (laughs) just like twiddling your thumbs, doing research, procrastinating, whatever you want to do. But now it's mostly putting the scans into the computer and working to train the computer algorithms to recognize what is bone and what is not bone. Um, It's just kind of tedious computer work for the most part now. So is it just um, the CT scanning, or is there other methods involved here? Uh, we are just using CT scans. Um, so we ha- I have some like clinical CT scans, so the same type of scanner that you, know, you would go into if you went into the hospital. Mm-hmm. Those are really low resolution, especially for something like a bird. You know, Those scanners are designed for yeah. humans, and <laughs> birds are much smaller than humans. Um, and then we have what's called like a micro CT scanner, so those are much higher resolution. So those are what we were taking in Montreal over the summer. Um, yeah, you just you can get up to like 20 microns, which is very high resolution compared to 600 microns, which is what like a clinical CT scanner would do. Um, so I'm just using those two methods. Okay. Yeah. So you've done all the scans and now you're taking those images from the scans and you're trying to train an algorithm to identify 
what's bone and what's not. So from there, what's your what's your next step? Uh, The next step is to approach the zoo archaeologist professor we have in our department and ask her very nicely to help me (laughs) identify (laughs) bird skeleton birds from their skeletons. Um, A lot of the time, you know, we do the basic things like measure the length of their bones and look for certain features that are specific to certain groups of birds. Birds in particular are quite challenging because, um, A, there's so many of them to, Mm -hmm. you know, try and decipher, but there's also a lot of, like, overlap in how big they are and their features. And then, of course, female birds are about 30% larger than male birds. Mm -hmm. So are you looking at a female versus male or are you just looking at a different species completely? Um, So we'd have to try and find specific features in the skeleton that are very specific to certain species of birds. Um, And we can kind of do that. Like falcons, for example, have extra bones where their tails attach to help with, um, because they can break in flight. Um, So, you know, it's just an extra muscle attachment for them to break. And then they have what's called a scleral ring. So it's like a a ring of bone around their eyeball. Muscles attach there because they have to keep their eye very steady when they fly. Um, And, you know, the thickness of that can depend on the species of birds. The amount of little bones they have in that ring can depend how those rings overlap. Uh, So it's kind of just, you know, a puzzle, a mystery, and you just have to figure out, you know, what characteristics do the skeleton have. And it's really hard with the CT scans (laughs) because, you know, we are stuck with what we can see on the digital. Mm -hmm. Most traditionals, like zoo archaeologists, people who study animals in archaeology, would recommend having physical bones to Mm -hmm. compare to documented skeletal collections but we do not have that luxury (laughs) which is unfortunate (laughs) (laughs) no so my question and you might have actually touched on it already in your explication of the research that you do but why is it important to 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 uh, classify to classify the the these birds and their their skeletal structures like is it just for put plain terms scientific reasons or is there you know, are you trying to trace where these mummies are, are coming from, let's say? So tracing where the mummies come from is quite difficult. So again, it goes back to that time where mm-hmm. people would just pull mummies out of the ground with absolutely no documentation. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we have some current sites that we know are dedicated to certain gods, so we can make a guess. You mm-hmm. know, there are catacombs specifically for ibises that are dedicated to Toth in certain parts of Egypt. Uh, but really mapping where the mummies come from is most likely a lost cause. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you can you can try certain methods, but so far nothing's really working. So in terms of that, it's more just to understand Egyptian culture better and understand, you know, this was a this was a culture that was very in tune with the natural world around mm-hmm. them. And we can tell that. So for example, one of the birds that I've already identified is called the common falcon. Uh, it was most likely an offering to the goddess Isis, who is that female goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can actually see on the hieroglyphs of Isis, um, it, she's usually drawn as a female falcon, which is like that is so detailed for a small hieroglyphic mm-hmm, depiction. Mm-hmm. So we know, you know, this one type of bird, it's drawn as how we would picture the common falcon today. Um, so they're very in tune with mummifying specific species for specific gods. And I think it just goes, I think a lot of the time people think of archaeology, you know, they're studying past cultures. They're like, wow past cultures weren't that advanced and you're like well we know Egypt was pretty advanced Mm -hmm. but I think Mm -hmm. this just adds another layer of depth to you know really how in tune and how aware they were of the natural world and their Mm -hmm. surroundings now do you read hieroglyphics no god no (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I I ask because you you were talking about like all the detail and we can tell from so I was wondering I I can recognize a couple now just from seeing them so much written you know in all my reading but I 
definitely far from an expert on something like that. <laughs> well, you have the PhD <laughs> coming up, maybe. Maybe one day, maybe one day. <laughs> if you can do like Duolingo for <laughs> become an expert. Yeah, yeah, that would be the dream. <laughs> um, I'm curious, like, do you know, are there any other cultures that like um, did mummification or like saw kind of the afterlife like the Egyptians did? Uh, so I don't know about the afterlife part. Mm -hmm. Um, there are definitely other cultures that mummified humans. As far as I know, ancient Egypt's the only place that mummified animals. Um, but we found mummies all around the world. You know, Mm -hmm. we see them in China, we have them in Peru. Um, and especially like in Peru, there's definitely intentional mummification. So we can tell that other people were doing the mummification. Um, but we also have natural mummies. They just happen if a body is placed in the correct environment, yep. something okay. very cold or dry, um, just allows the tissue to desiccate, mm-hmm. dry out mm-hmm. in a specific way. So they are found almost all over the world. Well, speaking of, I guess, your research, since that is what the episode's <laughs> about, obviously, um, you mentioned just before about uh, how your research is looking at the um, richness or learning about how uh, understanding Egy- ancient Egyptian culture more. Um, I'm just curious, what have you found? Has there been any results so far? Like, uh, Yeah, so I have found one thing. This isn't specific to just my research in general. This is kind of a known phenomenon. But we do have what's called a pseudo-mummy. Oh. So when we scan the bundle, uh, it, was a, it was this cone-shaped bumble, which, bundle, which is supposed to be an ibis. We just know that from the shape of the bundle. We know that because so many of those are ibises, so it would be an offering to Toth. Um, there's actually no bird inside. Oh, oh, It's completely empty. So it is just a bunch of bandages wrapped really tightly together. Uh, so we call these pseudo-mummies. Um, they were a very real object to the ancient Egyptians. Someone still would have purchased that. They still would have offered it to the gods, probably having no idea that there was no bird <laughs> in there. Um, so I think that's just a very good reflection of Egypt as a capitalist society still, um, because, because making these mummies was this mass production thing Mm -hmm. and people would purchase them. Uh, eventually they ran out of supplies to make the mummies or, you know, they were limited by the supplies that they had. What's really interesting about our bundle is that there's literally nothing inside. It's just the bandages (laughs) and other bundles that they have found around the world well not around the world housed around the world (laughs) stolen from Egypt (laughs) yeah Um, they found certain things like sometimes they use reeds or grass to help maintain the structure and then they're wrapped or they found bundles that just have fragments of animal bones not the whole animal themselves they've even found one that had a human humerus so the upper arm bone um, and it was like molded to be shaped like a dog uh, and it was just a human humerus in it so the pseudo mummies were a very real thing, and there are some Egyptologists who predict that like, maybe one third to half of the animal mummies out there uh, are pseudo mummies. The the arm one. <laughs> Did they uh, have any little a little more about where where that would have? Come no from? information whatsoever. <laughs> that one was a pretty interesting case. They actually they did a digital scan like I'm doing. Um, and then they did the same thing. They kind of removed the bone digitally, and then they actually 3D printed that bone to try and see what it was. And they're like, yeah, this is human. Huh. But yeah, no context as to how oh. how they got a, just a human arm bone and then why it's in the mummy. So, so even the ancient Egyptians were into scanning, <laughs> scanning oh, yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did a presentation for the department a couple weeks ago, and I called it the ancient con, I think. I love that. Yeah. That's so funny. I love that, too. <laughs> I was going to say that, or it's 
you know, the junior mummy or Yeah, there I mean practicing. there is that like you have to train people in yeah. you know a capitalist industry, so maybe they're like you can't practice on the real uh, maybe, animals. Yeah. But we really have no our best guess is that they ran out of resources. Yeah. It mm-hmm. just makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um I'm just curious, like do you have have you been to Egypt or do you have any plans to go to Egypt? <laughs> yeah. Egypt has been on my bucket list forever. Uh, I was hoping I could convince my supervisor to send me there this summer. <laughs> but Montreal was still very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it is on my list and I hope maybe as a graduation present to myself I'll go and That'd see. That'd be really cool. That yeah. would be the so Cairo cool. Museum is high up there for me, mm-hmm. but no, I've never been unfortunately. And like you go see the pyramids and oh, I'd obviously I'd, go do, I'd do absolutely everything possible <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I guess while we have a bit of time still left um what are your next steps going forward into the masters and I kind of spoiled it by saying PhD yeah I didn't mean to. <laughs> but, uh so uh right now it's just a crap ton of writing obviously mm-hmm. full thesis writing um I have two more birds left to identify so that's a pretty good start um and then, yeah, I'm hoping to do my PhD. It will not be on animal mummies, unfortunately, <laughs> but it, it will be using the same skills, so CT scanning and segmentation, um, that digital computer algorithm training, to look at activity in children in archaeological settings so we can kind of see if children were partaking in what we would call activity today or work today. That's the goal. Nice. First step is to finish thesis on time. Um, <laughs> that's the big step. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I guess this is always the question that like I dread when people ask me, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Like, where do you see yourself? Like, once you're done, like, what is your dream kind of job oh from here? Uh, I mean, I love to teach. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things to do. Um, so I would love to be a professor one day, but I know that's a very hard thing to do Mm -hmm. so something along the lines of teaching kids you know Mm -hmm. public outreach community engagement something along those lines yeah I got time for that though (laughs) (laughs) yeah lots of time to think it over so yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) well here's my here's my last question because you mentioned you're doing a totally different project you gonna come back for (laughs) another grad cast interview uh probably (laughs) probably Okay, well, I think we are all out of time. So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Carly Sharon, and my co-host was Megan Bull. We've been speaking with Maris Schneider, and this episode was produced by Jordan Vanderbilt. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcast. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.